The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about promoting and attaining a healthy and sustainable Indian River Lagoon. And this is this is the most diverse estuary in North America, the most greatest variety of species, and it's on the Atlantic shore of Florida on the eastern side. Uh, and I'm here in Stewart talking with Captain Nancy Beaver, who runs Sunshine Wildlife Tours in um, Indian River Lagoon. And Captain Nancy has a coastal ma- is coastal master naturalist which is a, a certification from Florida Atlantic University. And she started the educational boat tours back in 2000. Welcome, Nancy. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Oh, yes, Scott. Sorry. <laughs> Rob, where am I today? Uh, Rob, thank you very much for having me. And um, it's, a, it's a pleasure and um, pleasure to actually see you in person. Well, um, tell me about uh, Sunshine Wildlife Tours and uh, what kinds of programs you do. We um, have a very diversified program. Um, we do get a lot of kids out here. Um, we do an ecology boat tour of the lagoon, uh, the most biologically diverse estuary in North America. covers about 40% of Florida's east coast and ranges in width from about a half a mile to five miles. And uh, the tour is two hours long generally, and it's all about the ecology and the wildlife of the Indian River Lagoon. We troll with a little plankton and zooplankton net on the tour, and we put that in little discovery scopes so people can really appreciate what an estuary really is. Uh, by definition, it's just a body of water where fresh and salt meet and mix, but it's really the nursery for just about everything that lives in the ocean. That's what estuaries really are. So it's of vital importance that we maintain this habitat because uh, without the nursery, we're not going to have much left in the ocean. We usually see bottlenose dolphin on the tour. Uh, we do have about 800 bottlenose dolphin that make the estuary their home. They don't even go outside. Um, because of the shallow depth, the lagoon is only an average depth of three feet. And so it's a wonderful habitat for them. The seagrass beds make the fishing great uh, for them to uh, feed their young and teach them how to, how to fish for themselves. And... Um, Although we do have shark in here, it's the nursery for everybody. I think that another reason the dolphin like to stay in here is because um, it's a, easier for them to protect their young. The shark like to attack from below. So the shallow depths also make it easy for them. Um, it's also home to about 50% of the population of our Florida manatee that are still left. Um, our manatee, they travel up north, of course, when the weather's warm. But uh, it's a very important habitat. About 50% of the population spend a lot of time in the lagoon, again, because of the grass beds, and it's a major food source farm. And we also happen to be fortunate enough to live in an area where one of the little islands on the lagoon is one of the top ten bird rookeries in the state of Florida. Um, it is the only place in our county, in Martin County, where the American wood stork nests. And we have um, about 14, 15 different species of birds that utilize that little island. Um, and nest and roost on it. So it's a wonderful area for us to be able to really show the wildlife. Um, and that's uh, pretty much what we do, Rob. Uh, a lot of kids we get out here and a lot of adults as well. You uh, take a lot of school groups out, I see, and you have close working relationships with schools. Now, if families want to go out, um, is there a way to uh, to go out on your boat and see this wildlife? Absolutely. Um, we do do a lot of schools, 
per year. Thanks to you and your organization, we're able to offer um, affordable things to a lot of children that can't afford it. Uh, last year we did uh, tours for over 200 students from the YMCA. Um, we did uh, a lot of school groups. Um, we do uh, have a great relationship with the high schools here, and uh, we take out their biology students. And it's a whole different world to actually get out on the boat and see this as opposed to just looking at it in a classroom. Um, and families, we do a lot of families. Uh, we usually get the little kids, and I love getting the young kids because I think that's where you really make an impression. So we usually get the kids to help us with the plankton nets, uh, the plankton nets. And um, I think it really does make an impression when they see the little tiny juvenile life that you've got to magnify. And it also gives them a whole new appreciation for the next time they jump in and swallow a big mouthful, all that good protein that they're getting. <laughs> but I always tell them you have to eat a lot of shrimp at that size to fill up. <laughs> uh, Captain Nancy, it's great that you, um, your organization, the Sunshine Wildlife Education Programs, are partnered with the Ocean River Institute so that if people uh, wish to know more about getting in touch with your program, they can just go to uh, www.oceanriver.org and look for our partners, and you'll see Captain Nancy at the helm in the picture next to uh, Sunshine Wildlife Tours. Uh, you also have your own website, and people can contact you directly for more information about your program. How do they do that? It's uh, www.sunshinewildlifetours.com. And, uh, yes, we definitely uh, can check out the website. There's a little video uh, on it um, that shows you just a little blurb of what we do on the tours and that kind of gives you a, a whole new appreciation of it. And um, we just really enjoy what we're doing. I love what we're doing. And uh, when people come and take the tour, and we do get a lot of families, uh, we get a lot of folks here that uh, it's what they do with their company because not only do we um, really give you an appreciation of the estuary and the wildlife and the habitat and how important the habitat is, but also a little bit of the history of the area. So it's something that families love to do with their company when people come to visit Florida, give them a whole education of it. Well, I'm a dad, so I'm always looking for things to do with my kids, and anything that makes dads look good are good in my book. So it's <laughs> great to have you know, no programs like yours that you can, one can go to sea with. Uh, are you finding uh, that the school groups that come out year after year, are they seeing changes, or are there what brings them back every year to the program? I'm very encouraged uh, by what I'm finding with the school kids. Um, one of the things that one of our biology classes is doing right now, and it was the kids' idea, uh, not mine, but uh, we go out and we see some of the problems out here. And the kids are very active in helping us deal with those problems. Uh, we do a lot of oyster restoration projects, and the kids are anxious to work on these projects and get the oysters going again. Um, because of the pollution and the runoff and fresh water right here that we get as well, with, unfortunately, where we live right here, the St. Lucie River empties into the lagoon, and it is the most polluted part of the lagoon because we not only have our own runoff and our fertilizers and our pesticides and our herbicides, but we get everyone else's with releases from Lake Okeechobee all the way from uh, Orlando down. So you kind of get a double dose. And the kids have taken a big interest in this. Um, the oysters, unfortunately, uh, get wiped out by the pollution in the fresh water. And they're vital to the estuary. Each oyster out here will clean, filter, uh, between 15 and 50 gallons of water a day. One adult oyster will filter 50 gallons of water a day. That's amazing, isn't it? Yes. They eat all that crap, and then we eat them, huh? There's a thought. But uh, not from Indian River Lagoon. They don't eat these oysters. Well, not, not, not presently. Uh, the lagoon used to be one major magnificent uh, food source, and I think that's why the Indians settled here. Um, so, yes, they certainly have been in the past. Um, but right now we're just trying to get them going again, uh, restore the lagoon, and I, obviously they're a vital part of, uh, of the restoration of it and the health of it and the clarity and the quality of the estuary. Uh, the kids are also has also been very active. We have a biology class who's going out with me on the weekends now just to kind of film some of the problems out here, like people flying through the slow zones and the manatee zones. And uh, I think that could be a big eye-opener when the kids get finished with this project. Flying through? <laughs> Boats at fast speeds. Um, there's a lot of problems that we deal with in the shallows out here, and I think 
a lack of education is the biggest problem, so I'm hopeful that by getting more of these kids out here, it's really going to change the future. Because I like to think that people don't really realize what they're doing, and that's why they do it. And if they honestly realized what they were doing, it might make a difference. Um, one of the big problems I see uh, with people flying uh, at fast speeds with their boats, you know, the drive is down. You're going through shallow areas. The average hold depth is three feet. So there's a lot of areas that is even less than that. And not only do we injure manatee, um, turtles, bottlenose dolphin. Fortunately, we have a record number of bottlenose dolphin with uh, boat hits and injuries to their dorsal fins. But we also tear up the seagrass beds, which literally support all the life out here. Um, and when people run through the shallows and tear a scar through the seagrass that's three or four inches deep, that seagrass will never come back. Uh, the ones that will come back from lesser damage will take as much as four to seven years. So it's a, it's a huge problem, and people need to understand that the seagrass, nothing else exists without it. 100% of what lives out here depends on the seagrass. 70% directly and 30% indirectly, and we're in that 30%. <laughs> I came down uh, the other day because um, of your fabulous education programs, and the signature piece is that we had a dinner last night to raise funds for Sunshine Wildlife Tours and also the Ocean River Institute's work. And there was a tremendous turnout of people to that event. And then you were good to organize Steve McCollum to come down and talk to us about the problems. And this is a fabulous way to communicate is to pour us good drink and food and then, you know, tell us the, the real story kind of stuff. Uh, and what the, the speeding boat was an issue that is so educational. You need to educate people. People need to be educated that the, the lagoon looks expansive and wide and enormous, and there you are going on in your boat. And, and Steve brought home the point, as you said earlier, that it's a very shallow water lagoon. It isn't like the dolphins can swim under, you know, below the boats, um, except maybe when the boats are in the channels. But even still, um, you know, collisions is a real problem, and it, it seems to be worse here than anywhere where else. Was that? Yes, that's, uh, that's absolutely correct. Um, our county, uh, right here where we call the Crossroads area, is the worst problem in the lagoon. So we really need to focus on this um, because it is, it's vital uh, to all of life out here. Um, a bottlenose dolphin is aware of where the boat is, but when they can't even get out of the way, obviously there's, there's a big problem out here. And many of the areas, when I started doing tours that did have seagrass, now do not. And as I said, unfortunately, it won't come back. And a lot of the problems, I'm sorry to say, people blame the big boats, but it's not the big boats. It's the little boats. It's the little flats boats and some of the fishermen um, flying through those areas because they really don't understand. And I'm not down on the fishermen. I love fishermen, and um, one of my best friends is one of the best guides on this river, but she doesn't even drive her boat through a grass bed. She gets out and walks it. This Yay. lady, Yeah. This lady really understands that if she wants to keep fishing, she needs to protect the nursery. And so I really do think that education is the key, and right now we're just not getting the job done. It, it really makes a difference uh, to educate people and show them what's happening. And, and Steve, uh, and I saw actually a dolphin this morning. And uh, Steve had pictures of those. And there's nothing that brings it home like seeing the actual injury on the animal. Before you do that, it's kind of hypothetical. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. Got well. But when you see the, the, the suffering... Uh... Yeah, it's horrible. Um, we spend a good part of our summer usually and a good part of the year when we get calls from the Wild Dolphin Project to help locate an animal, an injured animal that has been reported. And what they'll typically do is... Um, We'll find the animal, we'll follow it and, and as much as we can, and um, see how the animal's behavior is. If it looks like it's something that's going to heal or it looks like it's something that's infected and that they have to take the animal, also that its behavior seems to be okay, um, that it can still fish. Sometimes they get such severe injuries. We had a little girl dolphin out here who had her whole dorsal fin cut off. She survived for a while and it healed over, but obviously she wasn't able to fish and turn 
and avoid predators uh, like the other dolphin would be able to. So um, it's a it's a serious it's a very serious problem and it's so sad. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm here with Captain Nancy Beaver of Sunshine Wildlife education programs and tours. Uh, we're in Stewart, Florida, and we're talking about the Indian River Lagoon and what an important ecosystem it is. It's a very shallow ecosystem, and the uh, boats have a tendency to scour the bottom and destroy the eelgrass, uh, and many dolphins are, are being hit uh, because they frankly have no... It's difficult for them to get out of the way of vessels that are uh, coming and going, and it turns out that this part of Indian River Lagoon is the worst, not the reflection on the people, it's the reflection of the way that there is just no water for the dolphins to hide in, and uh, there's quite a bit of boat traffic here, and the, the combination is bad news for the um, the, the bottom-nosed dolphins. Uh, we had a, a evening last night where Steve McCulloch came and spoke to well, we had about 100 people there, or about 90. 90 people who came together to learn, who had been working with Captain Nancy on helping preserve the area and sustain uh, and attain a healthy, uh, sustainable Indian River, River Lagoon. Uh, and Steve McCulloch has been on previous pro- was on a previous program of uh, this radio show, Ocean River Shields of Achilles. So if you look back a, a few months, you'll see. Uh, Dolphins in uh, dolphins in distress or something, <laughs> and uh, so that that's a, a there is also a program right before him where Dr. Gary Bassart uh, talked to us from Georgia Aquarium about the health problems of Indian River Lagoon. Uh, Captain Nancy Beaver, you've been running these uh, educational tours since 2000. Um, is there hope for the the wildlife there, or or what? Where do we go from here? 
I feel uh, I feel pretty good about it, Rob, uh, coming up because I am seeing a lot more interest, and um, and like I said, we get a lot of kids out here, and so I think we're doing a better job uh, making sure they understand what the problems are at the lagoon. So hopefully, you know, if Dad is one of those little fishermen who flies through the grass beds, the little son won't be in the future, and that uh, he'll be educating Dad a little bit, and uh, I think that's a good thing. I think that's what it's all about. And um, other problems. Other problems. Uh, well, other problems are um, fertilizer runoff. And um, so far, yeah, kind of tend to blame everybody else, and that's kind of easy, isn't it? We can blame the Army Corps of Engineers for creating this problem, of course, that uh, gives us releases from Lake Okeechobee and fresh water and everyone else's fertilizers. And we can blame poor old South Water Management for not managing it properly. And then we blame the farmers and the sugarcane industry for all the fertilizers, but the reality is um, we need to look in the mirror a little better. Um, the farmers are really not the problem. The lagoon was actually a lot cleaner when it was mostly farm country. Um, the problem is all of our suburban runoff. Um, I do some uh, water quality monitoring for the Marine Resource Council as well, and um, they came up with a statistic that even floored me, and that statistic was that if we have cleared a piece of land for agricultural use, it may increase the nutrient loading out here by as much as 100%. But if we've cleared that same piece of land for our typical suburban dwellings, it may increase the nutrient loading out here by as much as 500%. Wow. Um, and I think I, really, I think I really started to focus on this issue after the hurricanes went through in 2004 and 2005 when I saw what happened to the lagoon. And it's our runoff. You know, we're building more all the time and paving everything, and there's no place for it to go. And then we all have nice green lawns that we just way over-fertilize. And you're not going to find a phosphorus-deficient lawn down here in Florida. No. Yes, you brought this to my attention about a year ago, and I've learned that the Environmental Protection Agency estimates that the Indian River Lagoon gets more than 400,000 pounds of phosphorus per year and that's about 200,000 pounds more than it can sustain. And the lagoon also receives over 3 million pounds of nitrogen per year, which is over 1 million pounds in excess that can be absorbed by the lagoon. So we have this toxic soup that the, the dolphins and the marine life have to live in and wade in and swim through, and uh, that... We're seeing uh, evidence on the dolphins themselves. You're seeing skin-eating fungal infections that are stressing the dolphins. And in uh, a couple years ago, you had a, a high mortality rate of uh, uh, it was called a marine mammal unusual mortality event, which is a fancy way of saying you had a lot of dying and dead dolphins um, in the lagoon and. Uh, that's a combination of factors that have stressed them out. But one thing we can do is to um, enact a, a cap on the fertilizers that are people are putting on their lawns. Absolutely. And so we are sitting here today uh, right outside the Martin County Administration Center, and uh, after this radio show, we're going to meet with a commissioner, county commissioner, and I have with me a letter from the Ocean River Institute that 9,835 people have signed on to expressing concern that for the love of dolphins and the lagoon, please put a cap on how much fertilizers people apply to their lawns. Now, this helps us, you know, those of us who have lawns here, it frees us up from having to spread so much fertilizer. And um, it, it may seem like it's an imposition for government to tell you what to do with your lawn, but believe me, what's going into the waterways and the green slime that results from that is a major imposition on the wildlife and the tourist industry and, and all kinds of things. So we're hoping that the uh, commissioners will, will move on this. And there are five counties here in uh, around Indian River Lagoon, so this is just the beginning. And if anybody wants to participate in this, I invite you to go to OceanRiver.org and look for the... Uh, Florida Dolphins, you know, Save the Dolphins campaign, and you can go to the letters there, and please take a moment to add some words of your own, because that's what 
the commissioners remember more than the number of signatures. It's the well-chosen comments from unexpected places far and close in that, that really make a difference. So this is an opportunity to speak to uh, decision makers and tell them, in your words, what your concerns are about this beautiful natural resource called the Indian River Lagoon. You want to add to that? Yeah, I think that's a great point, Rob. Um, you know, most of uh, Florida's income is tourism. So, yeah, people don't want to come down here and look at a nice green soup. And those of us who live on it don't want to see that either. And it's just so important, you know. Unfortunately, some of our lawmakers' attitude up to this point has been, well, let's let the EPA take care of it because they've sub suggested these numeric loading standards. But, you know, that doesn't go far enough because it doesn't tell the lawn maintenance guy who has a whole shed full of it that he can't continue to use it for the next 10 years. If and when we do adopt those EPA standards here in Florida, what it does is it tells the manufacturers that they can't manufacture high nitrates and phosphates after a certain time. But it doesn't control the warehouses of the stores still selling it, and it doesn't control the lawn maintenance guy who might have a whole shed full of it because we have to do something about this problem right now. It's that critical. And I don't think I realized myself until after the hurricanes went through just how critical it was. When I trolled with my little plankton and, and zooplankton net, and I'm not talking about days or weeks, I'm talking about months, all I found was not the nursery of everything that lives in the ocean. I found a combination of a lot of algae. Each liter of water in the lagoon had between 62 and 372 micrograms of blue-green algae. That's the stuff you get when the nutrient level is just off the scale. Some of that algae is toxic. We don't know what's toxic and what's not until we test it. And I read at the time that if we were to ingest one microgram of toxic blue-green algae, it could actually do liver damage to us. What do you suppose it means to everything else that lives in the lagoon? The fish eat the algae, the bottlenose dolphin eat the fish, and the poor manatee who uh, had lost a lot of their seagrass beds from the loss of light, everything that was left out here for them to eat, of course, came along with a little blue-green algae. And we know so little about them, we have no idea what it means to their future. So it's a huge problem. The only other thing I found when I trolled with my net, of course, was uh, a lot of bacteria. Because when the ground is that saturated, the lagoon was full of, of sewage. So, you know, the whole, the whole soup to nuts thing is a, is a huge problem, and it's all about us. Um, it's not about blaming other entities and things that happened maybe 100 years ago. It's about cleaning up our act today. Um, and, of course, the manatee are a whole other issue. They're in serious, serious trouble this year. Tell us about manatees. You see them... Um are they frequent? Or? We see them a lot on the tours, and I can almost guarantee when we have weather changes down here, which unfortunately the last couple of years we've had colder winters than we normally do and warmer summers, but we do see manatee on a lot of tours. It's a very important habitat to them. And, boy, if you think the bottlenose uh, dolphin have trouble getting out of the way of those fast boats, the poor manatee don't even know they're there. Um, we used to think that manatee were kind of slow and stupid, and that's why they didn't get out of our way. Um, the biologists were telling us for years that they had poor vision and good hearing. But uh, there was a study done quite some time ago now at Florida Atlantic University by Dr. Gerstein, and what that study showed is that the manatee's hearing starts at about 400 hertz, and it goes to 46,000 hertz. Our hearing is between 20 hertz and 20,000, at least when we're young. Um, so they hear frequencies a lot higher than we do. They don't hear low frequencies at all. And unfortunately, all of our boat motors and engines are low frequency. So the animal literally doesn't know you're there until you almost touch it with the boat. Wow. So again, and, and when you watch them travel, they travel in the shallows. They don't travel in the channel. They know right where the channel is. So once again, I honestly believe that if we could stop people from running through these shallows at fast speeds, we would save probably half what we presently kill by boat hits. Yikes. The numbers, unfortunately, because of our cold winters, are, uh, are devastating. Um, I've been asking the Wildlife Commission for years um, that we need, a, we need a separate criteria for these animals. Um, they don't reproduce like other, other animals. If you were to compare the endangered manatee to an endangered woodstork, a woodstork will have one to three or four birds a year 
I mean, every time they nest. And a poor manatee is doesn't mature enough to birth until they're five to nine. They have a 13-month gestation period, so they're going to be six to ten. And once they do mature enough to birth, they're only going to have one baby every three to five years. Um, the population, we don't have a good way of counting, so we don't really know how much trouble they're in. We don't know what their carrying capacity is, so we don't know how low the species can go before they can't even make a comeback. And with this year's death count and last year's death count, I'm concerned that they're probably at that critical stage. Last year, we found 430 dead manatee. That's what we found. Heaven only knows how many died that we didn't find. This year, in the first, or this past year, in the first two months of the year, last January and February, we had found 450. We had two very cold weeks of, uh, of weather, and they can't tolerate the cold water temperatures. By September, the count was 700 for the year. And by the end of the year, it was over 800. And that's what we found. That's a serious chunk of their population. So these animals are in very severe trouble, no doubt about that. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with... Captain Nancy Beaver of Sunshine Wildlife Tours and uh, Indian River Lagoon. Uh, if you're interested, she's been talking about the plight of the dolphin and the manatee and the mention of wood storks. Uh, if you're interested in knowing more about the ecology of the Indian River Lagoon in Florida or what you can do to make a difference, uh, please visit our website at oceanriver.org and look into... Uh, you know, what we're doing with our, our partners in Florida here, Nancy uh, Bieber. Captain Nancy, you were talking about how uh, you would take groups out in your boat uh, along the lagoon and uh, you'd see, you would count uh, manatees. 
and get a sense of what's going on out there? Yes. Um, we don't have a lot of good information on them, but when you spend a lot of time on the water, you really get a sense of their movement and why they're moving and where they're moving. And they amaze me uh, because they seem to know exactly where the channel is and don't ask me how, but they typically travel outside of it. So, again, if we were to stop the traffic in that way, it would be very helpful to, to their future. Um, and when we get these cold weather, the last two years we've had pretty unusual winters. Um, up until that time, when the State Wildlife Commission would count them, the highest count we ever had uh, since the 80s when we started counting them was 3,276. Um, but we don't have a good way of counting them. We spend three days, and we go up and we take aerial photos. So we try to pick cold weather because they're going to be looking for the warmer waters to stay in, like the power plants and the warm springs of Florida. And then we pick three days, and we go up and count them. But the problem I see with that is um, we're not as good at predicting the weather as they are. And um, two years ago, when we decided to count them, I actually counted 15 manatee on the move in just a little quarter of a mile while we were counting them. So um, last year... When we counted them, I wrote in my log on the 10th of January, we had two very cold weeks of weather, and we counted them on the first week, not the second week. The animals seem to know when this weather's going to last a while and they're on the move. So last year, um, on the 10th of January, I wrote in my log that we saw over 30 manatee on the move within a little quarter of a mile. And then I found out later that the state actually started counting them on the 11th. So I have to ask myself, and we came up with a higher count than we've ever had. It was 5,040, way higher than we've ever had. But I have to ask myself, you know, we go take pictures and we go to sleep and we get up the next day and we start taking pictures again. The animals generally travel about three to six miles an hour. A lot of them like to travel at night because there's less boat traffic. So I'm wondering how many times we might have counted the same manatee to get a count of 5,000. Uh-oh. <laughs> So it just speaks to the question of there's so much we don't know about the natural history of these magnificent animals and the whole diversity of wildlife in, in the lagoon. And it's, we really need to adopt a, uh, an ethic of uh, sustainability and stewardship of how to properly care for our environments and not wait to get a bad count before putting two and two together, that pouring toxins into a lagoon is probably not good for the animals or driving at high speeds and so forth. Um, there's, through your efforts, you've really brought attention to the, some of the problems facing the wildlife. And, and what can people do who care, uh, especially those, well, those close and, and those of us farther away? Well, um, locally, of course, people can call our county commissioners. Um, law enforcement, um, our sheriff's department, our Florida Wildlife Commission, and if you're not so local, there's the Federal Wildlife Commission as well, which is supposed to protect these animals. Um, so, yeah, there's, there is a lot we can do. Um, and call in and we can get some uh, maybe sign-up sheets, some things going on that uh, if our law enforcement and our commissioners would like to contact people to get their opinion on it, we could do that as well. But I think there is quite a bit we can do. Um, well, it's the speeding boats. The speeding boats, absolutely. Um, I complain to the Wildlife Commission and the Sheriff's Department about these things. Um, I think our Sheriff's Department probably doesn't get a very good education about the ecology, for one thing. And again, the education is an important thing uh, when you're on the water, especially the ecology education. Um, the Wildlife Commission here in Florida, I have complained to them. Uh, many of the signs say 600 feet offshore. And when I asked one of the local officers why people weren't stopped, she actually told me that she didn't know what 600 feet offshore was. I said, ma'am, it's two football fields. Is there anybody in this country who doesn't know what a football field looks like? But I did write Tallahassee and suggest when we put the new signs up that perhaps we should say from here to shore because that's where most of them are. And, gee, that would be a lot easier for law enforcement and the boaters to understand. But I, I guess that one didn't get too far. Maybe the next time the signs go up, we can uh, we can get to that one. If uh, people see uh, something wrong in Indian River Lagoon, be it a suffering animal or um, a speeding vessel, can they call you or can they go to your website? They can email you, right? Or uh, what is your website and how do people contact you? 
Um, our website is www.sunshinewildlifetours.com. And certainly you can uh, comment on the website, go in my email, uh, give us a call, and call law enforcement because, you know, maybe the more we cry, uh, the more we'll get something done about it. Um, I also do get told that we don't have the personnel to do this, of course, and we're all suffering from those things that we're hearing every day. But it, the, the problem is so blatant in our area that if we were to set an officer there on two hours on a weekend, if he could physically do it, he'd pass out enough tickets to pay himself for the month. That's the thing. Yeah, so often decision-makers need to know there's a problem to justify their actions. And so they need to hear from us that there are that this is a problem and not just one person or, you know, that things get dismissed easily when they can minimize it. Uh, there's been talk about, um, briefly before the end of the program, um, there's been some concerns about the plastics in uh, Indian River Lagoon. Yes, um, plastic bags, our turtles uh, think that they're uh, jellyfish and will eat them and die. Um, many animals get caught in the plastic bags. The dolphin like to play with things like that. They see an opening. They'll get their nose stuck on such things as fan belts and whatever else, garb- other garbage we find out here. But not just bags itself. Um, things like monofilament and fishing line is a huge problem. And some of that can actually stay, I understand, for as much as six, you know, 600 years before it biodegrades so, or breaks down. So it won't kill one bird or one dolphin, or one manatee, because they all have problems with it, and the turtles. gets wrapped around their little flippers, and their, the dolphin, again, uh, you'll see them trailing along their dorsal fins. A lot of the birds have severe problems with monofilament. We go on a lot of bird rescues, and one of the biggest problems I see is monofilament and fish hooks in the birds. Hmm. Um, what are the birds? Well, we have uh, quite a variety here. Uh, that one little island that we show on the tour has a uh, brown pelican. That's where they nest, uh, double-crested cormorants, several different species of uh, egrets and, and herons, and an American wood storks. And they are an endangered species, and it's the only place in the county that they nest. And magnificent frigate birds. I think this is the furthest area in north that they're really known to utilize on a regular basis. But it's pretty cool to see them. Those birds can have a wingspan of about seven feet. They have the lightest wing loading of any bird. They can go out to sea for 100 miles, and they're really cool to watch because the juveniles have white heads and the female has white under the bib, and the male has bright red, and they can blow it out about the size of a football to impress the female. Huh. It impresses the heck out of me. It's a bright, beautiful red. Nancy, we're out of time. I really want to thank Captain Nancy Beaver for taking so much of her time to educate all of us about the ecology of the Indian River Lagoon, uh, her program, Sunshine Wildlife Tours, uh, and how they're promoting and attaining a healthy and sustainable Indian River Lagoon. Yes. And I want to thank you, too, Rob. Um, You guys, uh, Ocean River Institute is the first organization that I know of that is set up just to support local efforts like we're doing here, and I think that's just a wonderful advantage, a wonderful, a great thing that you guys are doing. I'm so pleased that you were able to come down to our dinner and physically be here so people could put us together and look at us together and see what we're doing together. And, um, you know, it really brings home that we are all thinking globally and acting locally, and that's what you're doing for a lot of small organizations like ours, and I really appreciate it, Rob. Well, it's uh, so the, the work is well deserved of all the support, and uh, it's just been fabulous. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back, and uh, I was expecting Mike Dunmire from Ocean Champions to call in. Uh, that he has not reached us yet, so I get some more time with Captain Nancy Beaver. Captain Nancy, what? how did you end up being the spokesperson of Indian River Lagoon? Well, I moved here uh, about 14 years ago, Rob, and I didn't even plan to stay here, actually. I um, came here to go to uh, Chapman School and get my, get my captain's license, but I fell madly in love with the area and with the plight. And um, in 1995, which is about when I came here, is when the state finally passed uh, a ban on the fishing in the lagoon. And um, there was a big fight about that and a big controversy over it because obviously the fishermen didn't want this to happen. But when you think about it, it was a very important law to get passed, is to ban the netting out here. For many years, the whole lagoon was heavily commercially fished, and it wasn't until 1995 that the that the net netting got banned. Um, dragging big nets in the, in the average depth of three feet was so devastating to this habitat, to the juvenile life, and to the grass beds that support all that life. So obviously it was a very necessary law to get passed. And I can understand that the fishermen weren't very happy. You know, a lot of them had made a living this way for a lifetime, some of them for generations. But they also knew their catches weren't what they used to be for some reason, and we were literally destroying the lagoon, destroying the whole habitat by this process. Um, you know, and the fishermen, um, when that law was passed, they were offered a free education. They were paid for their nets and their equipment. They were offered a free education at Harbor Branch um, in, um, in aquaculture, the raising of fish and crustaceans on land. And then if they decided that they wanted to go into the aquaculture business, the state bought the equipment and set them up in business. I mean, it was a wonderful offer. Wow. Uh, you know, one that was really hard to pass up. And, you know, it's a great field to be in today. I mean, we're doing more species through aquaculture every day. We're doing finfish, tilapia, flounder, shrimp, freshwater shrimp, the clams and the oysters. And unfortunately, of course, if we don't get this fertilizer ordinance passed and take care of some things out here. We might be farm-raising everything we eat pretty soon because there won't be anything left in the lagoon. Um, so the aquaculture is um, is vital uh, in, in um, getting this ordinance passed and getting a, a pesticide and fertilizer ordinance passed is vital. There are a lot of good products we can use out there today, too. We don't have to use those high nitrates and high phosphates. The products are already available. Well, that's great. Now, I see a lot of recreational fishing here, and is that, that benefited probably uh, yes. with the closure of the nets and brought 
revenue to stewards. Yes, I mean, it's still a heavily sport-fished area. It's just that you can't drag big nets in these shallow areas and destroy all the life out here. So it's actually been a good thing to help protect the grass beds and restore them. And um, if we could just stop the boats from running through them, it will, uh, you know, be a much healthier habitat for everyone, better fishing, better sport fishing, better fishing offshore because we're taking better care of the nursery. So, you know, it all works together when we just look at it that way instead of just looking at what's, you know, what's going to be here for us tomorrow. We need to look at what's going to be here for the future for our children, um, not just what we're getting out of it today. So overfishing is, you know, is also a big problem. You hear the fishermen uh, talk about, well, you know, I used to come in with 300, and now we only come in with 50. Well, maybe if you didn't bring in 300 yeah. for the last 10 years, you'd still have quite a bit more out there to fish, too. So it, it all goes together. It's all compounding problems, and the solutions all work together. I feel encouraged um, not only for what you have done to bring attention here and Ocean River Institute has done, but also that we do seem to be working a little bit better together. There are a lot of organizations out there trying to do good things. If we can manage to work together a little better instead of each of us grabbing a little piece here or there and not working together, I think it will make a big difference. Together, we have a voice. Um, individually, it's a very little voice. So. Well, a crucial ingredient is to have the Dutch boy seeing the hole in the dike. I mean, it's really important that you are bringing people out on the water on a regular basis, and people are looking over the sides and saying, hello, how's the ecosystem doing, and what's this all of a sudden? And then there can be responses to those kinds of things. Have you had adventures like that with groups? Or Absolutely. Um, I, think, I think probably the best thing that we do on, on the boat, on the tour, is uh, the plankton and zooplankton net. You know, it's just amazing when you troll with a little net and you bring it in, and sometimes we do have juvenile fish in there, and sometimes we, twice in 13 years, they've even had a little seahorse, which, of course, probably shouldn't be on the surface, so it's not something we get too often. And, again, that's a sign that someone's probably run through the grass beds and disturbed them, and they're lousy swimmers, and it takes them a long time to get reoriented. And they're also very delicate, which is why you go very slowly and don't want pressure on the net, because everything in there is very delicate. But when people look... At that little discovery scope, when I fill it up and, and we magnify it for them, they go, wow, oh, my God, you know, I had no idea of all that, that is in here. And the fascinating part is, too, the life cycle. I mean, some of the things in there might only live a month, but a lot of the stuff that we're looking at in there, and it's translucent, of course, at this stage, see their little eyes and you see their little antennas. And, of course, you might see somebody consume somebody else because uh, it is the nursery for everybody in the ocean, and uh, this is the bottom of the food chain we're looking at. But, um, you know, the shrimp, uh, the spiny lobster, the crab zoea, their life cycle to adulthood is going to be two years or more. So, gee, how important is it, again, that we take care of the nursery so they can grow up? Uh, the shrimp, most of their life, they spend here in the estuary, very little of it outside. And it's also a very important habitat to our turtles. Um used to be we didn't have a lot of green turtles here. They would, um, we had a lot of youngsters because most of the green turtles nested in, uh, in South America, the coast of Venezuela and Costa Rica, and the little guys would hatch out and come all this way to spend the first few years of their life in this estuary. We didn't even know why. We still don't know why. But in the last two years, we've had quite a few green turtles nest here as well. It seems to be growing, and I'm not sure why. Um, we had a uh, year before, I think, about 300 nests. Last year, about 800 nests. We used to have very few green turtle nests here, but it's the main nesting area for loggerheads. So um, it's a very important habitat and also some leatherbacks, but not a lot of leatherbacks. But it's a very important habitat uh, for our turtles, and again, this lagoon is of vital importance to them. We're also finding, um, like the dolphin, papillomavirus on a lot of the turtles in different areas as well. Oh, dear. Yeah, not, not, a, good, not a good sign. But uh, our dolphin are suffering from a lot of diseases. And, and the turtles, uh, the papillomavirus is prevalent throughout them. Uh, about 40% of, uh, of our bottlenose dolphin have papillomavirus. I got called out for a green turtle about three years ago that just kept staying in the same area and coming up and taking a breath and going down. And when I got to that turtle, it had papillomavirus under its one flipper the size of a grapefruit. It could barely even use that flipper. Both of its eyes were covered. And so the turtle was blinded by the virus and was starving to death because it couldn't see. So 
So um, the, myself and the biologist from uh, Florida Oceanographic at the time, and uh, we called the state, and the state came and got the turtle. But um, there's so many problems. The dolphin, the papillomavirus, a lot of them have lobomycosis. That's a flesh-eating fungus. And the only two living species that we know that get lobomycosis are humans and bottlenose dolphin. And I'm pretty sure they didn't give it to us, Rob. No. So, um, you know, the problems we're seeing are, uh, are vast and obviously environmental. Uh, there's no doubt about it. The Wild Dolphin Project, and it was great to see Steve. You know, I talk about the problems with the dolphin on the boat all the time, but to see the graphic displays and the pictures of these diseases, I think really opened a lot of people's eyes last night at our dinner. Um, people know that I talk about it all the time, but they never saw these graphic pictures of these diseases and uh, this fungus. And um, They learned uh, first, they started this health assessment of the dolphin about eight years ago, because what they learned from photographing the dorsal fins, uh, they've been photographing the dorsal fins for years, and we can identify the dolphin from the different marks, light and dark tips, and uh, scratches and marks on the dorsal fins. That's how we know we have about 800. But from years of photographing the dorsal fins, that's when they learned something that was pretty alarming, and that was that the dolphins who live here in this estuary are only going to live to be about 25 or 26 years old. That same dolphin offshore might live to be 50. And that's why they started this health assessment eight years ago, and we started finding these problems. So uh, it's, it's significant. It's not minor. It's something that we need to do something about today, not 10 years from today. Yes, because we're responsible for those problems. This is the result of us thoughtlessly putting stuff into the waterways, uh, perhaps far from the lagoon or into the lagoon itself. It's just we just got to learn to be more thoughtful and have practice better stewardship. Absolutely. And um, we just have to give a lot more forethought to the things that we do for the future. All the technologies and things that we created here in Florida, we understand today, are a huge problem uh, for the lagoon and for other coastal areas here um, that we have actually created. And the problem is we don't know how to fix it now. Um, you know, we have so many people living here and we just don't really know what to do about it. So we also have a tremendous water shortage here and a lot of problems. Well, I'm confident that because of your efforts and our efforts to get the word out to educate people, that we are a can-do society. And once people understand problems, they act to repair them. And so we see that today with... 9,835 people writing to the uh, Martin County Commissioner saying, please, for the love of dolphins, don't, you know, cap your fertilizer, do cap your fertilizers use and stuff. And um, people are responsive. So education is the key, and your work is really making a difference. So, again, I want to thank you for taking this time to uh, be on the show and, and explain the situation of and thank you so much, Rob, for all of your efforts. Um, again, I'm I'm confident that you know, like you, I think the problem is education, and people just aren't aware. And when we make them aware, they will act and they will do something about it, and we will do a better job for the future. I'm confident. Well, thank you, and that's it for this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Until next time, thank you for listening. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.